Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. When you have insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. How do you know you're not overpaying? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a technology company that securely connects with your insurance and reviews your claims for overbilling, wrong codes, and even fraud. To date, HealthLock has saved its members over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now, this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds, and Trump says he was too busy averting a Holocaust to commit fraud. We have a great show today, The Guardian's Hugo Lowell, joins us to talk about Trump's many legal woes. Then we'll talk to Rhode Island's Lieutenant Governor Sabina Matos about her run to fill one of Rhode Island's two congressional seats. But first, we have the bulwarks, Jonathan Last. Welcome back to Fast Politics, Jonathan Last. Molly, it's good to be with you. <laughs> I love you because you are like one of the greatest editors I've ever had. So I am always a, such a huge fan, though. I just Googled you and found out that you're not that much older than I am, which is very annoying, but still a little bit. Not that much older. I, I thought we were exactly the same age. Are we not the same age? You no, know, you're 49, man. I'm only 45. And I just turned 45. So I think I'm really 44 for another six months. I feel like I'm a really young 49. <laughs> I want to talk about my text exchange with Tim Miller, okay. your friend and mine. So watch the debates. I, of course, got drawn into the vague momentum. Just kidding. But one of the sad things that made me think of both you and Tim and made me text him endlessly was that there was one person on that stage and, and it might have only been one, maybe Two, maybe Mike Pence can be in the category two, though, can he really, who was occupying Earth One. And I don't like any of what she has to say, or I don't like her views particularly, but she did seem very much like on this planet, which for this Republican Party, I was a little shocked. Yeah, she was good. She was basically fine. She understood that the spending problems are not like just Democrats, even Republicans have been spending a lot of money since Ronald Reagan. <laughs> and which is fine, by the way. I mean, there are lots of good reasons to, to spend money for on the part of the government. And Mike Pence was was good, too. And I mean, I don't know about you. I came away from that debate and I was depressed precisely because I thought to myself, if Nikki Haley or Mike Pence or Chris Christie or even Tim Scott, I guess. Their politics are not my politics. Right. And I can quibble with you, or and Asa, I should say Asa as well. I can tell you five other reasons why they haven't gone far enough and why I wish they would have gone farther. But if any of them were the Republican presidential nominee, then I would be 
totally fine about the future of American democracy. Yeah. You know, I'd be like, great. I think Joe Biden's done a good job for president. Happy to go vote for him. This is awesome. And if he loses, we can all wake up the next morning and just go to work and not not be. But right. And the fact that those people combine for like 11 <laughs> percent. It's terrifying. Like, it's not the case that the problem is that the the party's just not giving the Republican voters any good options. Right. No, no. No, 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 that's not the problem. There are plenty of good options. (laughs) Right. They come in lots of different flavors, and the voters do not want any of them. Right. No, I agree. I mean, that is an incredible bit of sorcery, just finding us sort of in this situation where there are actually some reasonable choices. I mean, you know, it's funny because Chris Christie gets so much credit for being a bomb thrower. And I don't think of Chris Christie as deserving of much credit, I have to tell you, especially because it seems to me like he's quite interested in self-promotion. But Asa Hutchinson really has sort of come into the fold as just trying very much to sort of protect what little is left of the sort of sane caucus of the Republican Party. And Mike Pence, too. Honestly, I thought Mike Pence was a little more hardcore than Chris Christie even. But Christie did the, you know, look, Christie did a, a thing which I've been arguing, I've been writing about this for two years. God help me that I'm the one who, I don't know if you noticed this, but when The Atlantic, The Atlantic Monthly, one of our great magazines, when they need somebody to just praise Mike Pence, they call me. And I can't believe that this is my lot in life. Like, this is where I've come to. Mike Pence, you know, again, not not going to romanticize. Granted all the failures and faults and the enablement and all that. He stood up and saved America when, like, his life was on the line and his family's lives and his career. Because Dan Quayle told him to. But yes, 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 yes. Again, grant all of it, right? It shouldn't have been hard for him. And I myself did not rob a bank this morning. So do I get a cookie? (laughs) Right. No, it's true. I I get it. I get it. I was not born yesterday. But Chris Christie said, you know, hey, people, we shouldn't be giving Mike our grudging support. Like America owes him a debt. I was like, yes, Chris read my article. (laughs) (laughs) And that's right. And but the fact is that the people don't want it. Right. This is what one of DeSantis's problems right. is that he's caught in that, you know, his donors really don't want him being pro insurrection. And so he tries to have it both ways. And that's one of the things, one of the reasons the Republican voters don't trust him. I have to say DeSantis has really shown us that having no charisma, no personality and just being that, that just being a fascist is not enough. So let's talk about this partisanship. We've developed a political culture in which one party has affirmative policy goals and the second party is committed mostly to making the first party angry. Talk to me about this idea. Yeah, you know, I was thinking back to the <laughs> I was thinking back to the 2020 Democratic debates. And I don't know if you remember them, but it was like the first hour of every single debate was 15 people on the stage litigating the finest discrepancies between a bunch of healthcare right. plans, which were all basically <laughs> the same. Right, right, right. You want glasses. No glasses. Yeah. Yeah. Your, well, yeah. You, you know, Pete Buttigieg's plan would, would leave 2.3 million people uninsured. And what we're going to do is we're going to have, we're going to abolish the state marketplaces and replace portability. And, you know, it's all like, wow, these guys care a lot about healthcare. Right. Like, you know, no, nobody's, none of them are going to, if they win, do anything about healthcare, really, because we've just done that. And, you know, they're all about adventure. But the point is, like, Democrats have a bunch of actual issues that they want to use government to to enact policies and Republicans don't. And this has been going on since basically, I mean, at least 2016, but maybe 2012. Remember when Newt Gingrich like got really real famous just by like yelling at moderators and he shot to the top of the polling. They, they just want to trigger the libs. That's the highest the highest goal of of the Republican electorate right now. And you see it with the, you know, they don't have policy proposals. There aren't, you know, their policy proposals is, well, I will put sharks with freaking lasers on their heads in the Rio Grande to murder, <laughs> right. to murder migrants. Right, That's right. as close as they get to a policy. And it's a weird, weird thing because when I was, I don't know, when I was a kid, like the Republican Party was the party of ideas. They were like, we're going to have enterprise zones and, you know, like maybe incomprehensible because there were so many ideas like, you know, the flat tax people versus the fair tax people. But there was a lot of like, and that's all gone. All it is is like nativism and we hate the libs and we want to hurt people. Yeah. Now I'm depressed again. That's what I do. That's my move. Don't, don't, don't. Look, you don't invite me on this show because you want to be happy. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good point. And that was a sort of refreshing moment. Again, I don't want to say anything nice about Nikki Haley, but when Nikki Haley said, you guys don't have the votes for a federal abortion ban, it was like the first time that anyone had said, like, <laughs> this is how you do stuff here. Like, you know, you don't have those senators. I always think about this idea, and I actually wrote about this this week, which was that, like, Trump has tipped his base into unreality. And so they're so used to being promised things. I mean, I always think about, like, Trump will say, like, we're going to build the biggest wall. And also, it's already built. We're going to give yes. you the best health care, but also it's already happening. Again, people are going to get mad at me for saying this, but I think it was a radical departure from earlier political lying. It's one thing to say, you know, we're going to cut your taxes and then not cut your taxes. Or were you, the other side wants to raise your taxes when they don't really want to raise your taxes. Oh, they only want to raise it on the very rich. But this is like a whole other level. Like this is the kind of lying that is easily provable, which we saw with Vivek. Um, and I feel like with Vivek lauding Trump and then we see in his book that he's written all these critical things of Trump, like, you know, denying what he said to the Atlantic and then the Atlantic journalist has tape. That kind of like brazen untruthfulness, I think, has really tipped the base into a new place. Yeah, I, I would totally agree with that. And this is as you say, all politicians from the dawn of time lie. You know, St. Joe Biden has lied. Like this is, you know, this is what they do. But it is different. And the, the difference really is, I think, a feature of demagoguery and populism, right? I mean, that's what's different in character about it. It's like, where do you find that line between a normal politician and a demagogue? And it's right. like porn. Like, you, you know, when you see it, you know, like, right. and that's what Trump does. That's what Vivek does. That's one of the things that DeSantis has at a hard time with. Being a demagogue is a skill. You don't just choose like, oh, I'm going to be a demagogue in the same way you don't choose to be an NBA player. Like you do. <laughs> it helps to be six foot nine. Right. And Trump is really good at it. And Vivek is really good at it. And DeSantis isn't because part of it is got to be able to like lie to people and get people to be in on the lie and committed to it. And, you know, one of the, the scariest numbers that I've seen recently is in the Selzer poll from Iowa, the gold standard poll out of Iowa, which showed that Trump was only at, I think, 42 percent or 48 percent in Iowa. You can check me on that. But when you went into the crosstabs, what you saw was that a, a very small minority, I think 29 percent of respondents said that getting somebody who can win was the most important thing for them. I think that, again, I'm going from memory now because right. it was a couple weeks I ago, but I think this, it was 72 yeah. percent of... Of Republican respondents to the poll said it was much more important that the nominee be somebody who they agree with, which means that they're in on the lie. And they just, you know, I, I think if we want to get really deep on this, this is all decadence, right? It's when your life is so good and your Ford F-150 Raptor, which you paid $70,000 for is, you know, and interest rates are basically still, you know, still quite low and the economy's good and everybody who wants a job has one, then you can afford to live in this decadent fantasy world where you are committed to a guy like Trump and you don't care about whether or not you enact any real policies. We got to talk about Joe the Plumber, your Joe the Plumber piece. And then I want to talk to you about something which the timing on which is so perfect. First, talk to us about Joe the Plumber. Yeah. So I, I wrote a piece about Joe the Plumber yesterday, which wasn't really about Joe the Plumber, but, but about all of us. Joe the Plumber, I assume most of your listeners have heard, he passed away over the weekend from pancreatic cancer. The guy was only 49. I don't want to speak for you, but my initial like first two seconds reaction was like, well, F that guy. The obits on him from like NPR and the New York Times were very soft focus and just made him sound like kind of a gadfly. And he was a little bit worse than that. I mean, he, he wrote something horrible after a mass shooting, like an open letter to parents where he said something like, I'm sorry, but your dead kids don't trump my right to own guns or something. I mean, something absolutely horrible. But I caught myself, to my credit, like after like one second, I was like, no, this guy just died a horrible death. Like you can't, what do you mean F this guy? Like, you know, he's got family, he's got people who loved him. This is a tragedy. This is horrible. And I, there was just a, a there's a nerdy political journal called uh, Political Psychology, which just came out with a long study about partisan schadenfreude and people yeah. really just getting off on seeing not, not things they like happen, but things that are bad happening to people they don't like. And this is a danger for 
everybody. Yes, like 100%. we can all slump into it. And, you know, a lot of people did not like it. I had a lot of comments on Facebook saying like, oh, well, the Republicans are much worse about this than Democrats are. And I was like, OK, well, maybe they are. But the point is, it's not like one side has all of it and the other side has zero. We all have to resist that. I, as someone who's sober since I was 19, resentment is really the worst thing you can marinate in. I love Michelle Obama. She has a gazillion dollars now. When they go low, we go high. I don't necessarily think that is what Democrats should be doing. But I also think like no one should celebrate anyone dying, especially in their 40s, especially the cancer that we are in a time right now where cancers for younger people are going up, you know, 15, 16 percent. I read statistics that, you know, certain cancers are up a lot. And that I think is quite scary and not should not be celebrated no matter who gets it. We should all love each other. I mean, this is what it really gets down to. I mean, it makes me sound like the hippy dippy that I well, now, that I am. I went to Quaker school. So here, let me give you the punchline. So, you know, so I write this piece and it's very emo and it's like the only way out of this problem is Americans. We all got to hug it out and, you know, be our best selves. And I fail all the time, but I pick myself up and I try to do better. Blah, blah, blah. And two hours later, the fucking Rudy Giuliani thing comes out and you know, I'm like, oh, this is God testing me. God, God is like, oh, you, you're so high and mighty about not doing schadenfreude. Look what just happened to this well, fucker. Okay. So, and I just, <laughs> but I want to pause with Rudy Giuliani. He destroyed the lives of Shea Moss and her. And he did not die of pancreatic cancer. This is much more like actual justice being served to help the victims right. of a bad person's actions. She was passing a ginger mint to her daughter, working as a poll worker, which is like one of the greatest civil civic duties that you as an American citizen can do. And she was rewarded. I mean, you listened to her in the January 6th hearing. That is a person who has post-traumatic stress like you can't fucking believe. She can't anytime anyone says her name, she gets terrified. Yeah. What's the number that makes that okay? A million dollars? Two? I mean, what's the number that gives you your name back? I mean, I interviewed Lisa Page. I was the first person to interview her. I'm friendly with Pete Strzok. I mean, those guys don't have their names back. Yeah. Half is my answer. Like she ought to get half. <laughs> I think when we see something like that, it probably would be best not to to like do the Snoopy happy dance, right? right you can right. you can say, oh, this is good that this happened because this woman deserves to be compensated and we need deterrence for future bad actors. Right, and whatever. which I do think is so true. So we should try not to like happy dance. But I got to tell you, like, I'm sorry. I did like a little happy dance and I'm not proud. Right. Maybe a little proud. I hope they get the money is all I can say. One of the real worries here is that people aren't going to want to work in the polls. So I hope potential poll workers will see this and say, you know, okay, this is not a bad thing to be doing. Okay, I have come to another amazing bit of sorcery that I'm going to actually read to you again. I'm sorry, I'm in a reading mood today. But I actually read it to Jesse too because I was so floored by it. And I feel like it's just very perfect. I'm going to read it to you and then you're going to have to guess who said it, okay? Okay. I would like to remind these people that backwardsness is useless. This is a person who just lamented the backwardsness of some American conservatives who he said insisted on a narrow, outdated and unchanging vision. They refuse, he said, to accept the full breadth of the church's mission and the need for changes in the doctrine over time. So, Rab. The Pope. <laughs> oh, the Pope. The Pope. <laughs> okay. I mean, I, mean I think my answer is better. I, okay. <laughs> it may not be right, but I think it's better. Is that unfucking believable? Sounds about right. My man. The Pope. Pope Tambourines. Yeah. He's yeah. like seven years older than Biden also. Or eight <laughs> years older than Biden, more importantly. But yeah, the Pope. My people. My people. Doing this, you lose the true tradition and you turn to ideologies to have support. In other words, the ideologies replace faith. Yeah, I mean, that is very close to my own experience with American Catholicism over the last uh, seven or eight years in which MAGA priests are basically everywhere. I'm Catholic. I, you know, I live in a little Catholic ghetto and my kids go to Catholic school. I'm like one of these weirdos who has a lot of actual like personal friends who are priests. And a priest buddy of mine said to me, it was like a year ago, two years ago, we were talking about precisely this. And so my buddy, th this buddy is very orthodox. And 10 years ago, you would have thought of him as like, oh, he's a conservative priest, but he rejected the MAGA stuff. 
And so even though he is still like the exact same guy and hasn't like he's now viewed with a little bit of suspicion of like, <laughs> oh, well, maybe he's not really conservative, right? <laughs> the way he put it to me was that he had a moment in his priestly vocation in which he realized that he was prioritizing truth over love. What the Catholic Church really calls you to do is to never let there be any daylight between truth and love. And to the, you know, to the extent that one outstrips the other, then that's where all the problems come from. And I think that's what Pope Francis is talking about here. He's urged priests to welcome and minister people who are gay, divorced and remarried. He's called on the whole world to tackle climate change, calling it a moral issue. What happened to us? Like the country is, you know, we got this guy in Rome. It feels like such a, a failure on the part of the American people. Yes, the American people are the worst. I mean, I say this as a Jew raised by atheist communists. I still feel like we created a country where our, our religious right went crazy. They did. And, you know, the, like the Catholics used to, I'll just let you in a little secret. Even the conservative Catholics used to look down on the evangelicals and be right. like, yeah, you know, well, at least we're not a bunch of mouth breathing idiots like those guys. And now here we are. And a lot of America's Catholic intellectuals over the last seven years have turned into mouth breathing idiots. And it's precisely because of this stuff. I mean, you look at first things, the magazine first things has, you know, gone insane. And the Catholic intellectual tradition has been like deeply corrupted. And, uh, you know, another, I get a, Another priest buddy who's in Canada is Canadian, and so he has an interesting uh, an interesting view of this. And he says this is all, this is everything about Americanism, and that Americanism is such a civic religion that it eventually corrupts everything. And so, like American Catholicism has become like American first and Catholicism second. And I think there's there's probably something to that. So interesting. I really appreciate having you here. Thank you so much, John. I hope you'll come back. Anytime, Molly. Bye. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about 
how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. (sighs) Good one, Dad. (sighs) Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of... dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hugo Lowell is a political investigations reporter at The Guardian. Welcome back to Fast Politics, Hugo Lowell. Hello. Let's talk about Trump's legal problems. He is fine, right? He's going to be fine. I mean, choose your problem and then make that characterization. (laughs) So you've been in Georgia, you've been in D.C. I would love you to give us like a 30,000 feet. We know he has four, really five sets of indictments, state, federal, superseding. We know he has 91 counts, right? And then he has these civil charges But just give us sort of the what's kind of happening right now in Trump legal. In terms of the 30,000 foot view, I mean, I like to think of it as in what is going to cause him the most kind of legal jeopardy, right? So I think the biggest issue for him or the biggest issues for him, number one, is a classified documents case because the conduct alleged in that is getting... You know, if if you look at the superseding indictment, it only bolsters the original indictment. You basically have Trump retaining these national security documents. um, And at least one of those documents he admits holding on to on tape. And we didn't have the original Iran document in the first indictment, but in the superseding indictment, they charged the Iran document as a count. So clearly the special counsel went and found it and identified it and had, you know, grand jury witnesses identifying that document. And also, we now have this bolstered element of obstruction, which is really bad for him because, you know, he goes and gets his employees to try and delete surveillance footage. But because they're so busy stomping around in the bushes with flashlights, they recall themselves (laughs) trying to figure out which cameras to delete. In your legal opinion, is that bad? In my legal opinion, I'd say that's that's a real problem. I feel like that was a sort of unforced error. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing is kind of comical because his employees are also not very good at carrying out his wishes, right? This is less water game, more let's hop in a clown car and, you know, put the sirens on and say that we're coming down to Mar-a-Lago. You know, let's send shushing emojis to people and then like, oh, you know, pull people off to the side. <laughs> oh, I really got to do this important thing. <laughs> so it's not great. <laughs> Now that's really the classified documents case. So let's let's now get to the federal January 6th case. The classified documents case is easily the most open and shut, though. I don't know. I mean, look, I, I don't think any of these cases are necessarily open and shut. I think when things go to trial, when you, you see kind of the arguments and how the jury compositions and, you know, in, in the classified documents case, you also have the wild card of Judge Cannon, who has been very deferential to Trump's side. I mean, even in the pre-trial motion so far, I mean, she has delayed holding a Garcia hearing, uh, which is a hearing to inform both defendants and witnesses that their shared representation, their shared lawyer could cause them not to have effective counsel at trial. You know, that has not happened yet. And these are all delays that are going to factor into the case. And I think, you know, even the May trial date that had been scheduled is now looking likely to be pushed back further. And so I think the classified documents case has its own unique element. Right. And that has ended up with Judge Cannon. 
Right. And, and you know, Judge Cannon is, of course, is the same judge who presided over the special mass litigation last year and, you know, proceeded to give Trump a whole bunch of... Right. She's a MAGA judge. Well, I, I don't know if it's fair to say she's a MAGA judge, but she has shown preference and deference to Trump's legal team probably for the last year or so. She was appointed by Trump. Yes, she was a Trump appointee. In fact, she was one of the last judges appointed by Trump. I think her Senate confirmation came basically December 2020 or November 2020. Why were you in D.C. on Monday? So that was the federal January 6th case. So now we're getting on to indictment two or four. And so Judge Chuckin, who is overseeing that case, was setting a trial date. That's the federal and also the superseding. No, this is the federal. The only case where we have a superseding indictment is the classified doc. Okay, so that's the Judge Cannon case. Yeah. So on Monday, Judge Chuckan, presiding judge in D.C., set a, a March trial date for the federal January 6th case. And again, this is a case that presents Trump with a very big problem because one of the statutes that has been charged, obstruction of an official proceeding, is a statute that has been used against hundreds of January 6th riot defendants. And the core element in that statute is, did the defendant act corruptly, that's the operative language, to stop basically the certification on January 6th? And there is currently a case pending before the DC Court of Appeals, uh, for, well, the, the DC Circuit Court, where they are trying to come up with an interpretation or a definition of the word corruptly. But we can look at how the statute has been applied to the hundreds of other January 6 defendants. And in almost all cases, it has been interpreted as kind of unlawful benefit or kind of corrupt benefit. And it is quite clear that Trump was seeking to obtain a corrupt benefit on January 6th, by pressuring members of Congress, by pressuring senators, by pressuring Pence, by encouraging the crowd to not go home, he was effectively trying to extract a corrupt benefit for himself through the certification not being completed. And I think that's a real area of um, jeopardy. So there's so much traffic on Trump's legal calendar. How will we know who goes first and who will sort of win that? I mean, we don't know. I mean, right now, as things have been scheduled, it seems like the federal January 6th case will go first. You know, we're set for March 4. Whether or not we stick to that, you know, remains an issue. Also in March, we have the Manhattan AG, a hush money case. I think that's March 25th off the top of my head. You know, the, the issue with all of these trial dates is that they, they do tend to slip, Right. You know, there's delays in discovery production. There's pre-trial motions and stuff. Pre-trial motions. You know, we call it, as we say, motion practice. And, you know, Trump, Trump's whole thing is to delay it as much as he can. That's his strategy. If he can push as many of these things past the election as he can, and if he wins, the whole idea is to either self-pardon himself if he's already been convicted, or if there is a case on appeal, for instance, then he, you know, the idea is he would appoint a sympathetic attorney general and have DOJ just drop the charges. Joyce Vance yesterday was on Nicole Wallace and she was saying that Donald Trump is not going to be running for president from jail. The way that the timing on this works, that is not going to happen. Can you just say a little more about that? Yeah. And it's fundamentally because even if he's convicted in, let's say, all of these cases, the appeals won't be resolved by the time the election rolls around. Even if we stick, let's say, you know, the, the current schedule in the federal January 6th case, I mean, if there's several weeks of trial, we'll get through, you know, March will be at the start of April. The idea that this will go to the Court of Appeals and it will be all resolved by November 2024 is just not realistic. And if that doesn't happen, he might be convicted, but he will be out on appeal. Just like Steve Bannon is currently out of on, on appeal, even though right. he was convicted in his contempt of Congress case. And so I think in, in the same vein, that I don't think there is any expectation that you know, Trump will be incarcerated and will be having to campaign from a jail cell. One of the things that is really interesting about these cases is that they are both, they're a sort of intersection of politics and the legal system in a way there is no historical precedent for. So Every judge, from Judge Cannon to Judge Chetkin, they are 
in this sort of brave new world of legal cases against someone who is the front runner for the Republican nomination. Talk to me about what the tension there is. Yeah, I think, you know, in many ways it, it matters and in many ways it also doesn't matter. You know, I think because of the way these cases are coming down, basically in an election cycle, necessarily there will be politics involved. Trump's whole campaign for president was announced early because he thought it would insulate him or protect him from DOJ seeking indictments against him. Ironically, it kind of backfired because had it not been for his campaign launch, Merrick Garland would not have appointed a special counsel and there would not have been an office of the special counsel with you know 60, around 60 prosecutors detailed to that office or, or investigating him on two kind of parallel cases. It would have been you know, a, a handful maybe or a dozen or so line attorneys in the National Security Division and, and, and you know, in the criminal division. And so he's kind of brought this on himself in some ways. And the response has been particularly Trumpian in that it's impossible to determine where the presidential campaign ends and where the legal team starts. It is all the same thing. In fact, I think it's better to think of it as a presidential campaign first and a legal defense team second. The <laughs> constant complaint we heard as reporters through the documents investigation was that the lawyers are finding it difficult to work around the campaign. Always the messaging that came first. It was always the, oh, but you know, we need to do this politically or you know, this doesn't look great optics-wise rather than let's treat this as a really serious kind of criminal investigation that could land Trump in all the hot water. And having to deal with the new reality that he is now a criminal defendant in four cases and you know, in Judge Chicken's words, he will have to yield to the criminal process. I think that's really tough for them because neither Trump nor anyone around him or anyone else, frankly, has ever had to deal with this. But I think the, the one point that, is, that has become a, a feature in all of these cases is he is now subject to the judicial process. And he might not like the fact that his federal January 6th case has been scheduled the day before Super Tuesday, but that's out of his control. You become a criminal defendant, you're subject to the wide discretions that federal judges have. And if federal judges, if an Article Three judge wants to schedule a, a trial on a particular day, they will do that. And you have very, very little recourse. I mean, Trump's talking about he, he can appeal the trial date. That's just really not feasible. Yeah. I mean, it is this conflict of here we have someone who is running for president while also a defendant in numerous federal, state and civil cases. When you talk to Trump's advisors, they are very cognizant of the fact that Trump is now running for president in order to keep himself out of jail. And I think they feel that very keenly. And Trump feels that very keen. You know, back in November and December, when he was just launching his campaign, a lot of the accusations and kind of dismissive comments were like, oh, you know, he's low energy. He doesn't really care. I mean, that might've been true to some degree, but it's not true now. And it's not true now because he knows if he doesn't win, he will not have the power to self-pardon himself if he's convicted, and he will not have the power to have an attorney general just drop these cases. And so he really needs to win. And I think maybe people are underestimating a little bit the lengths that Trump might go to ensure that he does win because the stakes are now so high. Yes. And I think that is a really good point. And you'll remember he did announce very, very early because he wanted to get ahead of these indictments. Right. And then kind of, as you were saying, in trying to get ahead of the indictments, he probably actually sped them up because, right. you know, a special counsel was appointed, you know, an office was stood up, you know, people were detailed over from Maine Justice and the you know, U.S. Attorney's Office and, you know, the public integrity section, the National Security Division, and all these lawyers came in. You know, if you have about, you know, 60 lawyers investigating you, chances are they're probably going to find something. And so, you know, I don't know if that was in hindsight the best strategic move for him if he did want to string this, this all out. Can you do two seconds on Peter Navarro? Yeah. We are going to trial <laughs> next week. I'm watching the video of him trying to grab the Trump lost and you know it sign from a protester at his news conference. 
Right. And he'd try to grab any missed. Catch us up on Peter Navarro. Yeah. We are going to trial in U.S. versus Peter Navarro. It is the contempt of Congress case after Navarro basically blew off the January 6th committee subpoena. I mean, it's a little bit crazy that we are going to trial in 2023 for a subpoena that was issued, you know, in late 2021. But here we are, you know, we have jury selection on September 5th. The presiding judge in this case is Amit Mehta. You know, Judge Mehta said, you know, he expects jury selection to maybe take only one or two days. And so it could be very, very quick. So we may go to trial on September 7th as, as kind of scheduled. And Peter Navarro has a big problem because his central defense and what, what, what his lawyers have been saying was Peter Navarro genuinely believed that he had an executive privilege waiver from Trump that allowed him to refuse to comply with the January 6th committee subpoena. The problem was it was never formally written down anywhere and he never got a, a written notification from Trump to that effect. So what Navarro's team tried to do instead was to use a letter that Trump had given him with respect to the coronavirus subcommittee that, ex that said, you know, Peter Navarro, you must protect executive privilege to say, oh, this was, you know, this, this applied to all of the subpoenas he got. But the judge did not buy that. Ultimately, it has been <laughs> viewed as a defense. And so I think this is going to be a very short trial. And his lawyers are really prepping, like in Bannon, for a fight at the appeals court. DOJ stumbled a number of times in the pre-trial period, but I think for trial, we're in a pretty good position. I just want one last question because it's breaking news that Donald Trump has just pled not guilty in Georgia. Yeah. I mean, it's, look, it's very procedural. We knew he was going to plead not guilty. The question was, would he appear in person on September 6th and, and kind of, you know, say not guilty in person or would he, would he file a waiver and just do it on the docket and you know, he's chosen the latter. It saves him from having to go back to Fulton County and uh, Superior Court. Uh, it's, it kind of saves him, saves him and his campaign a lot of hassle. And so I think this is always the expected move. Although I will say that, you know, and this is kind of indicative of what we've been talking about, how the political and the legal kind of get enmeshed in the same thing. His political team were considering having him actually go in person if they could figure out a way to hold some sort of event afterwards whether it was like a press conference or a rally or a gag, you know, they were keen to turn it into a media event if they could. Even if it was half-hearted, the fact that this was being considered, I think, is indicative of how much still the political campaign has an equity in everything that Trump does. Thank you so much, Hugo. I hope you'll come back. Thank you. Sabina Matos is the lieutenant governor of Rhode Island and a candidate in their first congressional district primary. Welcome to Fast Politics, Sabina. Thank you, Molly. Thank you so much for having me here. First, you need to tell us you are the lieutenant governor of the state of Rhode Island. You are running for one of Rhode Island's two congressional seats. Explain to us what this special election is, when it's happening, why it's happening. Yes. So I am the current lieutenant governor, just ran last year and won four years as lieutenant governor. Then our congressman, David Cicilline, resigned this year for good reasons. He became, he became the president of the Rhode Island Foundation. And this has an opportunity now for an open seat in Rhode Island, which you don't see too often. <laughs> That's um, right, since there are only two. It's there are only two, right? We had one last year and now a second one this year. This is a special election. In, it's going to be on Tuesday, September 5th. I'm running for, for this so seat. So soon. Yes, very soon. We are less than a week away from Election Day. Okay. And so you're running for this open seat. Explain to us, who are you running against? What does your race look like? Yes. Because it's an open seat, actually, we have a large field. Oh, interesting. Even though know, we started with about 34 candidates. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> but we're down to we're down to 12, actually 11 Democrats right now. The primary is less than a week away. And right now, the race is coming down mostly to uh, me and my opponent, who is more to the left of me um, in his politics. So explain to us why you accurately represent and why your views more represent this district in Rhode Island. 
Yeah, the state of Rhode Island, we're always labeled as a blue state, right? And CD1 actually is the most liberal of the two districts that we have. This district, actually, uh, the state of Rhode Island, we have never sent a Democratic woman to Congress. Wow. Yeah, we had only one woman. Say it again, man. I mean, wow. Yes, we had one woman in the 80s and she was Republican. And people think of Rhode Island as being so blue, but we have never sent a Democratic woman to Congress. And we are more than half of the population. I think this is a great opportunity for us to send the woman's voice to Congress. Out of our four members of the federal delegation, the two senators, uh, the two state reps, we never had a Democratic woman in Congress from Rhode Island. The state of Rhode Island also has a diversity uh, that we are about 25 percent diverse. We have a 16 percent Latino, 8.9 percent Black. You have the Asian and mixed race. When you add that together, we're over 25 percent uh, people of color. We have never sent a person of color to Congress either from Rhode Island. Wow. So you're 25 percent people of color and you've never sent a person of color to Congress. That is correct. So this year um, we have this opportunity to elect the first a Democratic woman to Congress and also the first person of color. I'm Afro-Latina, uh, was born in the Dominican Republic and have been here for the last almost 30 years, have been in the United States. Came here, didn't speak the language when I arrived and have been able to learn English, go get an education in Rhode Island College, serve my community first in the Providence City Council, now as Lieutenant Governor, and now running for Congress, thanks to the amazing thing that we have in this country that is called democracy. So tell us a little bit about your views. You have this experience of being self-taught, self-made. How has that affected your views and what will you do when you're in Congress? The experience that I have of being in the local government helped me a lot to understand what needs to happen in Congress. I have been working a lot in the housing space. Being in the local government, I get to see firsthand whenever there is a fire and a family get displaced. But when the city condemns a property and there's a family that doesn't have a place to go, most of the time they get one or two days in a, by the Red Cross put them in a hotel. And what I have found out, which is so shocking, is that a family in that situation is not a priority based on the federal definition of homelessness. That family, because they have a place to stay that night, they stay in a hotel. They don't meet the, the priority list in order to help them find a place to, to live. We have to make sure that we change that because I remember one case in which I was helping a family, a grandmother, that her home was condemned. She had the custody of her two granddaughters. And every time I was trying to call the agencies that hold, worked with the homelessness, I was faced with the same problem. She's not a priority. She wouldn't become a priority unless they were on the street or into a wow. shelter. Yeah. And a family like that, if the grandmother goes to the street or into the shelter, she loses the custody of the granddaughters. So that makes sense. We have to do things in a different way. So that's the experience that I bring to Congress. The other thing is my fight for a woman's right and for uh, the right for abortion. We have to make sure that we protect the right at the federal level. Because right now, people like myself, Black and Latino women, tend to be at a higher disadvantage whenever a law is passed that prohibit abortion in their state. Exactly true. Yeah, in Rhode Island, we're fortunate that we codified abortion into law here. But there are other states that don't have that. And a woman that cannot afford to take time out of work to travel or don't have the resources to travel, some have access to abortion. And then now the latest court ruling that is also coming against the access to abortion through the mail when more than 15% of the abortions are done through medication. That's also something that worries us and that we need to make sure we send someone that's going to fight for women's rights. I want to come back to abortion, but I first want to go back to housing for a minute. One of the big problems states like yours have and states like New York, where I live, have and really a problem in the Northeast, but also in California, is that housing is just very expensive. It's prohibitively expensive for working families. We've had real trouble with legislating for that. Do you have 
ideas do you feel like being in Congress, you might be able to help with that? Yes, we have to make sure that we send more resources to the states and the uh, local municipalities to build more housing. Here in the state of Rhode Island, one of the biggest challenges that we had is that what we have right now is that we have not been building housing at the pace that we needed to keep up with the population growth. That's one of the number uh, number one problems that we have. For the first time last year, we were able to allocate out of the ARPA funding $250 million for housing. That's a, a big investment for Rhode Island that we have never seen before. But the problem has grown to be so uh, big that that just makes a little bit of dent in, into the, the housing challenges that we have. We have to make sure that at the federal level, once we send more resources for the states and for the local government to be able to build more affordable housing and to build housing at all income levels. Because we here we have such a big problem that we need housing at all income levels. We haven't not been building. But also sending resources to help families that are about to become homeless or that suffer right. an emergency and become homeless. We need to make sure that we send more resources to the local level. So I want to ask you about abortion and the medication abortion. One of the things that I have for a long time been really keenly aware of is just how much the people who suffer when you make abortion illegal are women, women of color, women who are working multiple jobs. Children are, and I say this as a mother of three, wildly expensive. I mean, just incalculable, like the largest indicator of bankruptcy is children. So people who are barely scraping by, making it impossible for them to be able to manage their own fertility. Talk to me about ways in which you feel that when you're in Congress, you could protect these women. Yeah, we have to make sure that we protect abortion access at the federal level. The same way how we were able to do it here in Rhode Island, we have to make sure that it's done at the federal level and not leave it to each state to make that on the individual decision, because that is what is putting at risk right now, abortion access for so many uh, women that cannot afford it. They cannot afford to travel out of the state to get an abortion. They cannot afford to take time out of work to go and get an abortion. And right now, there are some states that are passing legislation that make it even hard for a doctor to make the right decision, right? There are doctors right now that may have to be thinking, um, checking with their lawyers before they make a medical decision. And that's what is a risk. And if you're not concerned about the woman and the woman's need, think about if your child is a, is a physician, is a doctor, and have to be put in that position that um, a medical decision that they make may be used to either take their license away after years of work or either may end up in jail. This is the reality that, that some states are dealing in. This is what could happen if we don't do more to protect abortions uh, right at the federal level. You recently became Rhode Island Lieutenant Governor. What have you learned from your time in that position? Yes, I became lieutenant governor when Gina Raimondo was appointed uh, secretary of commerce. Our lieutenant governor became governor. Oh, so you recently got reelected to that position. Yes, I got reelected uh, last year. In this two and a half years um, in the role as lieutenant governor, one of the things that I have learned is that going back to the housing need at the beginning, I, was, I used to be a council member of Providence, which is in the metro area of Rhode Island, right? It's a community with a lot of needs. And I thought that the housing problem was just unique to the uh, metro area community. The more I traveled through the state of Rhode Island, I realized that the housing was a big problem in every community. I remember going to Block Island early on as lieutenant governor and learning about the challenges that Block Island is having with housing. And most of the time, we don't think about that when we think about Block Island or Newport. Right. But they're having such a big challenge with housing that they're not able to attract not even municipal employees because they're not able to pay enough for them to be able to afford housing in the island. Or they rely so much on seasonal workers. And a problem that they're having is that they're not housing, affordable housing available for the workers to, to live when they're there. 
So I was very surprised to see how the housing is such a big problem, even in communities where you didn't think it was going to be a problem. Yeah, really interesting. I mean, housing, I feel like, is one of the sort of most important things we're still struggling with, for sure. And it feels like there's no way to get on it. One of the things that Rhode Island has been really famous for, because it's such a tiny state and you're so affected by climate change and rising tides, is legislating for climate. You have one of the absolute all-stars, the OGs of climate legislation, my man, Sheldon Whitehouse, a frequent flyer, frequent flyer (laughs) on this podcast. But I'm just curious, you know, as the lieutenant governor, what kind of stuff have you guys done with climate and what does that look like for you guys? Yeah, the state of Rhode Island has been a leader when it comes to the climate space. Thanks in, in big part to Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. We're so fortunate to to have him here. But we are doing things that we're, we have been at the forefront of the offshore wind with the windmills of Block Island. We have been right now in the process of the constructions, the beginning of the revolution uh, winds, which is going to add about 400 megawatts of power to Rhode Island and also to, uh, 300 megawatts to Connecticut. We had been working also to incentivize to add electric buses and electric bags. We had been providing incentive for those that wants to switch from um, their vehicle, from gas vehicle to electric vehicle. And we are making sure that we are providing also free buses, which are electric buses, um, a new line for transportation. So these are some of the things that we have been doing here in the state of Rhode Island. The governor signed the Act on Climate, which is going to have a big impact. We want to be the leaders in when it comes to renewables and switching from fossil fuel to renewable energy. So I feel very proud of the work that Rhode Island has been doing in this space. Thank you so much. So tell us again what day your election is. The election is going to be on September 5th. So okay. the date just the day after Labor Day. Wow. So really close. Thank you so much. I hope you'll come back. Thank you so much. Thank you for this opportunity, Molly. And I'll be back. Good. Thanks. And now your moment of fuckery. Jesse Cannon. Molly Jong Fast. Oh, Clarence Thomas. I, I feel like this was kind of like a funny thing he did today. What'd you see here? I thought that was amazing. It really is something. So Clarence Thomas decided finally to disclose all the stuff that ProPublica reported months ago. Look, man, I think his thinking was, I don't even know what his thinking was. It was just kind of magic. And for that, him and his Better late than never disclosure is our moment of fuckery. Okay, wait, stop the presses, Molly. Every year I buy you a cameo for your birthday. And this year when it dropped on Ari Melber's show that Roger Stone said all that stuff about planning January 6th, I knew who I had to choose right then and there and I requested it then. It took him a little while after your birthday to fulfill it. He's been busy. But live on air, this just happened while we were taping the moment of fuckery. It came in. So let's listen to what he said. This is Roger Stone with a belated birthday greeting for Molly. Molly, I'm sorry I missed your birthday on the 19th. I understand you went to see the movie Oppenheimer. Complete propaganda. Oppenheimer was, in fact, a Russian spy and a communist. I understand you have a beautiful voice and you love politics. I'd love to invite you to one of my wild parties, but, well, those are long in the past. Today, I'm a dedicated family man, no longer wild, but still loving life. God bless you, Godspeed, and a belated happy birthday. Wow! And the best is he was so late that they actually refunded me. We got that for free. Oh, oh that's so bad. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, we have so much fun. That is incredible. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, 
please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late-night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, from Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives of women history has forgotten. We've always been intrigued by stories of disappearances. Whether it's a fraudster from the 17th century who kept evading the authorities, or a novelist who taunted the Nazis and faked her own death, we all want to know, what happened next? To find out, listen to Amanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.